Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a series of programs on the subject of Once Saved, Always Saved, and today's program is a continuation of the previous programs where I have been addressing a number of verses in the scriptures that people will often refer to whenever there are discussions about this subject. In today's program, I'm going to begin with James chapter 2, James chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, where he said, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And then he proceeds and talks about justification from there. Now, the position that is taken here in James chapter 2, verses 17 through 20 that I just read, the position that is expressed here is that James states that if you do not have works, your faith is dead. By default, we could say that you are simply not saved, or you are not going to be saved. And the reason why you are not going to be saved, or you are not saved, is because of your lack of works. So this is the position that people will generally take from what James is expressing. If you do not have works that are expressed to the satisfaction of the person who is asserting this position, of course, they have to evaluate you and determine whether or not the works in your life are to their satisfaction. If these works do not exist, then you do not have salvation. Your salvation is conditional upon these works. This is the position that people will generally take. Now, the first question that has to be asked is what I was implying, and that is, what works? And when will you know that you have performed or you have exercised enough works so that you can have the confidence that we would like to have, you have the confidence to know that you have fulfilled the requirements that are expressed here. When are you going to know that you have enough works? Because the claim may not just be, do you have the existence of works, such as the existence of one work in your life experience? Can we just point out one? Well, maybe one is not adequate. Maybe we need five. Maybe we need 20. Maybe we need 50. Maybe we need 50 a week. What is the criteria? It's open-ended. That's the point. It is open-ended. Generally, it is expressed as being open-ended so that it becomes a subjective decision of the person who is questioning your faith. In general, people want to leave it open-ended. They do not want to commit to exactly what the criteria needs to be in general. 
Now, of course, we might find some people who simply will not want to debate that and will just simply state that they want to see the existence of some works. I understand that. But in my opinion, if a person is going to take the position that is expressed here, we should also define the quantity of works in order to have the proper confidence that I believe our God would like us to have. We should have a degree of confidence. Otherwise, what are you going to do? You're going to live your entire life never knowing if you're going to be saved. You simply will not know. You will never know. And I understand that there are people who do feel very comfortable with that being the position that a person should take. I just don't see that as being real at all. From what I can see in the scriptures, from what I can see that is testified of in the scriptures, I don't think that that is an acceptable response to just simply say that everyone will be uncertain until the last day when they stand before the Lord and that is when they will find out if they're going to be saved or not because he will then determine if the works were adequate or if you had enough works or whatever. This is what people will end up with and I just simply do not see those kinds of decisions being made in that way from what I can tell concerning the testimony that we have in the scriptures. So what was he intending to say? Well, in general, what I have found is that the majority of people will suggest that if a person has faith, then we should anticipate, we should expect there to be some works that are expressed within and through that individual. Well, I can agree with that. I can agree with the expectation. I don't believe that this is what James was intending to say. But I do believe that that is true, that we should anticipate and expect some works to be expressed within an individual. I do not believe that these works are mandatory for salvation. I do not see any evidence that that's the case, in my opinion. I do not see that that is what salvation is about. To me, salvation has to do with the restoration of the spirit of life, not the demonstration of faith by works. It is by being resurrected. Now, I do believe that if a person is resurrected, that as the Lord grows and matures that individual, there will be an expression of works. But this is not really my concern. At that point, in my opinion, this is a matter between that individual and the living God, between them and their God. It's not a concern of mine. I personally can testify of my own life experience. When I first got saved, I saw no evidence of there being any works in my life. My faith was not expressed through works in any way whatsoever when I first got saved. For a period of time after I did get saved, I cannot reflect back and point to anything specific that would give me any confidence that I could say that any works were expressed within and through me. However, if you were to do an evaluation of me today, I am confident that I would compete very well with many people who suggest that they express their faith through their works. If someone wanted to evaluate me on that basis, they could look at my life and they could see many works that would qualify according to their definition. But that to me is still not so much an expression of faith. That to me is just simply who I am, who God has made me to be. He has given me works to do and I do those works. I don't need those things as a way of validating my faith in some way. My faith is my faith. My trust is my trust. My belief is my belief. What is expressed through that will certainly be a reflection of what I believe. I can understand that, but I do not see my works as being the validation 
that these are necessary in order for me to claim some form of validity to my faith. That's how I personally live my life. Other people will evaluate those things in different ways. But like I said, I certainly can compete well if a person wants to try to evaluate me according to these standards that people define and believe in. Even though I don't believe in them, I would compete very well. But my point in presenting this is to say that this is an expectation, this is an anticipation, and if a person is not experiencing life change in some way, then I would have some concern, but I would not refer to James chapter 2 to address this concern. I prefer to go to Second Peter chapter 1, which I will in just a moment. Before I do, though, I would like to complete the thought relative to James chapter 2 that has to do with the intent. Now, what I gave you just a moment ago was a description of a potential intent that James might have had. He might have had the potential intent of simply saying that we would expect these works to be performed, but these works are not necessary for salvation. And normally, the reason why people will say that this was his intent is because they want to be sure that they can reconcile what he said here in James chapter 2 with what the Apostle Paul said in a number of places to include Romans chapter 3. Because Paul does use an example that James uses here in chapter 2 and gives a different conclusion or the appearance of a different conclusion. So people will try to reconcile these two passages by giving that kind of an explanation. Now, of course, I do have a different position concerning this. While I agree that that truth that is expressed is true in the sense that we should have an expectation and anticipation, but that it is not required for salvation, is that really what James intended to say? It's my opinion, and there are not very many people who share this opinion that I have, and so I want to let you know that this is simply a unique one. doesn't mean that I have greater or lesser authority necessarily. This is just what I personally see. It's my opinion that James did intend to say that salvation was conditional on your works. I think that he was wanting to say that, and that he did not agree with the Apostle Paul. I am not going to address the reasons behind that in this program, but with relevance to this topic of once saved, always saved, or is salvation conditional, I will say that it is my opinion that James was describing conditional salvation here in James chapter 2. However, I believe that he was wrong. Now, in saying that, that doesn't mean that I deny the scriptures. I just see the book of James differently than other people see the book of James. I'm not going to get into the details of my view concerning the book of James and what he says here in this program for the sake of time, because there is a lot to say about it. Instead, I'm going to refer you to the programs titled Faith and Works. I produced four programs, almost two hours of content, where I gave my explanation concerning what I just described. And so I'm going to refer you to those programs where I did that work. In addition to that, take some time to listen to the programs I did on the book of Galatians, verse by verse, after you listen to those programs on faith and works, especially chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2. Continuing on into Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, he said, But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, 
to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. That's verse 9. He has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Verse 10 says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's in verse 10 and verse 11 that the topic tends to come up. It's in these two verses. Because a person may stumble or they may not enter in to the everlasting kingdom because the entrance will not necessarily be supplied. And the way that people will describe this is by saying that if these things that he described in verses 5 through 8, if these things are not in your life experience, then perhaps the Lord may make the decision to not let you in to the everlasting kingdom because you will have stumbled through your failure to experience these things. Your failure to add these things to your faith describes a conditional salvation. That's how people will generally view this. My answer to this is very simple. I don't see a very complicated answer to this kind of interpretation. To me, the answer is found in verse 9, where he says, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. If a person has forgotten, if they have failed to live in the forgiveness that they have in Christ Jesus, then what would you expect other than a lack of these things? Complete forgiveness is the foundation for our faith. When a person believes that the Lord our God holds our sins against us, when you take that position that God holds your sins against you, then none of these things are going to be real in your life because you will always have this barrier between you and your God that will prevent you from resting and trusting and living in dependency on his love. And if you fail to live in dependency on his love, then none of these things are possible. From what I understand about the scriptures and our relationship with our God, there's nowhere to go. So consider it from this point of view. There are many people who do not believe that the sin issue has been resolved. There are many ways that people present this belief that the sin issue has not been resolved. For example, there must be some sins that you've committed in the past, recent past, doesn't have to be more than a day or two, and you can consider those sins to be old. You committed those sins. What do people tell you? They tell you that God is holding those sins against you. So you must do something in order to obtain forgiveness. Otherwise, you are not going to be right with God. This is a very common position that people take in the faith in Christianity. Well, what happens when you do that? What happens is that you create this barrier between a person and their God to the extent where they cannot be loved by their God. 
They cannot be accepted by their God. They cannot rest in what their God accomplished for them. They cannot live in the inheritance that He has given, and so they are guaranteed to stumble. He says, if you do these things, you will never stumble, but if you do not do these things, it's because you've been hung up on the sin issue. You've been hung up on the forgiveness issue. That is where the issue lies. Now he goes on to say in verse 11, For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom. This is not a conditional statement. This is a statement in order to explain to you that you do have access to eternal life. You do have access. You do have an entrance that is supplied to you. It is there. You have it because of what he has done for you. But if you are not going to believe that he has already done it for you, then perhaps you won't be able to experience it. Maybe you're not even saved, but I don't think that's what he's intending to say. In my opinion, what I see here is that he states that it is already there, that it is already present, and that it is abundant. So from my point of view, the issue has to do with forgiveness. It does not have to do with salvation. It has to do with the topic of forgiveness. And if a person is not going to rest in the forgiveness that they have received, then these things are not going to be real. It is not a matter of you have to find some way to make these things real, otherwise you're not going to qualify for the everlasting kingdom. That's not the condition. The condition is that if you won't rest in forgiveness, you could very well still have a place in the everlasting kingdom, but these other things that are described between verses 5 and 8 will not be real in your life because you're going to be stuck. That is what I see in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Continuing into 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the later end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to be shortened to the point with this. The position that people take, based on verse 20, is that they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but they are again entangled in them and overcome. There is an assumption that this person was saved, but I don't see that that is a necessity in order to read this verse. In my opinion, a person can escape the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, knowledge in the sense of inspiration, knowledge in the sense of believing the things that he taught with regards to go back to the commandments, go back to living a holy life. Those are things that a person can embrace, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're saved. There are many people who can embrace the teachings of the Lord Jesus, but not receive of the resurrection. That, to me, is a distinction, and it's my opinion that that's what he's referring to. Very similar to what I explained in previous programs with regards to people who left the faith, they left the church because they were never really a part of the church. They were never really saved to begin with. And the reason why I feel very comfortable 
in reading this section in this way, especially when considering verse 20 with regards to escaping the pollutions of the world, the reason why I can feel very comfortable in saying that is because of what he says in verse 22 with regards to the dog and the pig. A dog is a dog, a pig is a pig, and the unsaved is an unsaved person. That's how I view Second Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, that he's talking about someone who may have been a part of the church, who may have put sin aside, who may have rejected the world, who may have escaped a part of the world in that sense. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they have been resurrected and are saved. If a dog is a dog, a dog is a dog, a pig is a pig, and an unsaved is an unsaved person. But if a person is saved, if a person is resurrected, they are not going to be entangled in the world in the same way. Continuing into Second Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. In verse 15 it says, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. What he refers to, or what people will generally refer to in verse 17, is that a person may fall from their own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Well, just because a person falls away from their steadfastness, just because they are led away in error, that does not mean that they will have lost their salvation. He certainly doesn't say that. He says in verse 18, instead of that, or as a result of that, as a consequence of that, if a person ends up in that, continue into verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. In other words, instead of falling away, just continue to grow in Christ. Don't be worried about how you might be led away or how you might end up in error. Just stay focused on growth. Stay focused on the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is the objective. To me, he is not intending to say anything here about conditional salvation in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. I just don't see it here. In Revelation, the Revelation chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, very popular. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What people will say is, from Revelation chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, is that if you find yourself being persecuted or if you enter into suffering of some kind, then you had better be faithful all the way to physical death, otherwise you will not overcome the second death. But I do not see that he is intending to speak 
about a person being faithful all the way to physical death to obtain the crown of life. I don't see that here. Consider, for example, what he says about 10 days, tribulation for 10 days. Well, what if it's 11 days or what if it's five days? That's the point, is that he's referring to a specific circumstance with regards to the persecution that the people were likely going to experience. And he is prophetically proclaiming that this is going to be the case. They will have a crown of life. They will not be hurt by the second death. But to me, this is not a conditional statement, conditional upon the 10 days. Like I said, what if it's nine days or if it's 11 days? Are they going to have to give up their crown if they don't make it for 11 days and then they physically die? If you're going to take a position, as I described, concerning a person's eternal salvation on the basis of these verses, then you have to consider everything that he expresses here. In my opinion, he does not establish a condition. In my opinion, he just simply establishes a position for encouragement to feel confident that even though you are going to physically die, you are not going to be hurt by the second death. You may be hurt by the first one, but you're not going to be hurt by the second one. Go through, be faithful, because you will have the crown of life. You will not be hurt by the second death, not because you made it for 10 days, but because of what Jesus did for you. With regards to overcoming, where he says, he who overcomes, what does it really mean to overcome? Consider what John wrote in another place, not just in the Revelation, but in another place. First John chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so if you were to put this together with what he said in the Revelation, it is he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God who overcomes, and that is the person who will not be hurt by the second death. The condition of salvation is belief in Jesus as the Son of God, and being born of God, that is how you overcome the world. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net